Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. The last two messages that I had a chance to preach before Ryan, uh, before Ryan filled in last Sunday, uh, we were in Psalm 23, and where we see the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. And one of the things that I'm thankful for as I was being, beginning to prepare for that, uh, for that passage, and I've shared that passage just at about every funeral that I've ever conducted. Uh, I memorized that passage when I was a young child, those sweet six verses there. But as I began to prepare, I learned a lot about just the practicality of what it meant to be a shepherd, especially in the day when David penned those words, the job of the shepherd, but also kind of the nature of the sheep. You know, the nature of the sheep being kind of dumb and stubborn and ignorant and, and all these things and smelly and, and all that stuff. And it kind of began to speak to my spirit because the Bible says I'm a sheep, the Bible says we are all like sheep. And the, the, the thing about our, a sheep's nature that surprises me the most is how much a sheep is prone to wander, right? I mean, sheep have to be watched 24-7, 365, or they will just wander off. If they're not within a fence that contains them, they know no boundaries, they know no limits, and they'll just wander away from the good protection, the good fold. They sometimes are just so ignorant that they don't know how good they have it. Man! Does that tell us a lot about ourselves, doesn't it? We look back through the Old Testament and see the pattern, uh, the sheep-like pattern of God's children in Israel, right? They loved him for a moment, and then they wandered away, and they turned their back on him, and they began to worship false gods. And, and then, and then the, the, the God, as the shepherd, would have to bring them back through his staff and rod. And that's what he does with us. It's when you look at the Old Testament, when you look at what Israel did to God and what God did to retain Israel as his people with mercy and grace, it's kind of, a, it's kind of an Old Testament illustration of the way we live our lives as the people of God today. There are seasons where we go through where we're closer to God than, when, than at other times. And understand that it's not God's thing, it's our thing. If we're not as close to God right now, it's not him. He hasn't moved, it's us. Because we're like sheep, we're prone to wonder. Just like the prophet Isaiah said, he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And then the Bible says the grace of God caused him to lay upon the Lord Jesus Christ the iniquity of all of us. That's how he rescued us. That's how he returns us to his fold is that Jesus paid the price of our sin and our death and he returns us to fellowship and to restoration with God. But you see, in the Christian life, there's something that always has to take place if, if, as we are sheep, as we are coming back into the fold. There's a moment, and this is something that I wonder about the sheep oftentimes. I wonder about a rescued sheep when Jesus leaves the 99 and comes and finds that one and brings him back. At what point does it click in the sheep's brain, man, I've got a good shepherd? At what point does it, did it click in the sheep's brain, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. They looked around and the shepherd is no longer there. At what point did they repent of what they'd done? Because there's something, there, there's, a, there's a foundational aspect to the Christian existence and to our relationship with God that we don't make big enough a deal about in today's modern Christian Christianity, and that is repentance. Repentance is something that has to be part of the natural rhythm of our relationship with God. If we are not repentant, we cannot grow in Christ. If we do not repent of those sins that we get into as we wander from God, we can't return. 
You see, because an unrepentant sheep will never return to the fold. An unrepentant sheep never realizes his need for the shepherd to rescue him or to bring him back. But here's what I love about Jesus, our shepherd. He said this, he said, my sheep know my voice and I know my sheep. You see, when a sheep would wander away from the fold, maybe they hadn't gotten themselves into trouble yet or anything like that, but as the shepherd began to wander out, and here's how well the shepherd knows his sheep. He knows where to find them when they wander. God knows where to find us when we wander, amen, because he sees us, because we're fully known. He knows where to find them when they wander, and when the sheep hears the shepherd's voice, immediately it clicks. This is where I'm cared for. This is where I, what I'm loved. Out here in the middle of nowhere where I know nothing and no one, I do know the voice of the shepherd, and they begin to come to the shepherd. And if they're, if they're caught and if they're stuck, they'll begin to bleat out, call out for the shepherd to find them. Where have you, when have you found yourself in those moments where you were wandering and you heard God's voice calling out to you, saying, come to me? All that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Where have you found that moment in your life? If you're not finding that, chances are you're still in that wandering phase where you're just kind of enjoying being out there and you don't really feel like you need the shepherd yet, but, pro but I promise you upon the authority of God's word, that day is coming. And when that day comes, repentance is necessary. Repentance is necessary to draw back to the shepherd. I'm thankful, and what I've been learning through this, this passage within Psalm 23, I thought I knew all I could know about it, but just like the Word of God, it just keeps teaching you stuff. It just keeps feeding you from that same well over and over and over again. What I learn about this as a sheep myself is that there's nothing that I can bring to the table on my own except for neediness and stubbornness, yet the shepherd is patient and he is kind and he guides me with his staff and with his rod because it's good for me. You see, experts argue what it is uh, that, that causes a sheep to wander like it does. Maybe it's that they're stubborn. Maybe it's that they don't know any better or whatever. But let me, let me introduce you to an animal that knows how good he's got it with his master. All right, look up on the screen here, if you would. Look at that handsome devil right there, man. Isn't that a good-looking dog? That is not like one of those pictures that you get with a picture frame that you buy at the Dollar Tree, okay? This is my dog, Bentley. This is Sir Bentley Bertram Holmes. Uh, he's about five years old. He is a vicious 11 pounds, okay? And he's beautiful, man. The ladies love him. Um, but, uh, but anyway, Bentley is someone, Bentley's not a sheep. Let me tell you that. Bentley, this guy right here, we rescued him about two years ago. And I'm telling you, from the very first day we got him, he's been the perfect dog. I mean... Anywhere I go, he is right at my feet. Or anywhere Stacy goes, he's right at our feet. Like, I can walk him around the neighborhood. We're in a new neighborhood now because we moved. And, and he, he, we're in a brand new neighborhood. He doesn't wander off. He's right there at our feet. We can walk him, out without, walk him around without a leash on. He just doesn't leave. He doesn't wander off. Why? Because he knows how good he's got it. And because I always have a piece of bacon in my pocket. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> Who's going to wander away from the smell of meat, right? No, I mean, he's just been the best dog. He's my buddy. He doesn't leave. There's this close bond. This is what makes dogs better than sheep. We already know they're better than cats, right? But this is what makes dogs better than sheep because they know how good they've got it. And Bentley will hardly ever wander away. He only wandered away like a couple of times. And I'll talk about that in just a minute, okay? But Bentley, dogs are better than sheep, right? Because they won't, they won't wander away. And to be honest with you, I don't know what, what, what I would do if Bentley was prone to wander. I know myself, I'm not a very patient guy. God knew to put us together because he's so good, and I'm very impatient sometimes. Sometimes when the kids would wander off, I'd just let them go. No, I'm just teasing. I didn't do that. But if Bentley was one of those that was always running away, I don't know how often I would let it go without giving up on him. 
That's what makes me not a very good shepherd. As far as, that's why I don't, that's why I don't have pet sheep. I have a pet dog, right? He's good. Isaiah tells us this. We're all like sheep and we've all gone astray. All of us. We're not like Bentley. It's not in our nature to stick close to the shepherd. It's in our nature to wander. So what do we do when we wander and we realize we wander too far and we need to come back to the fold? We cry out and we bleat like those sheep. But what we bleat is the tone of repentance. And this is kind of what we see in the text this morning as we, uh, as we look at this this morning. We wander because we want to. We can talk about why we wonder. Maybe it's because we're ignorant. Maybe it's because we're stubborn. Whatever it is, but when it comes down to it, we wonder because we want to. It's in our nature to do it. It's in our nature to think that we know better than God. Adam and Eve, we inherited it from our great, 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 great grandpappy and grandmammy, Adam and Eve, when, they, when God said, don't eat this tree, and they still ate of that tree. Ever since then, we've, it's been in our nature, we're wired to wonder. So also in our nature... In, the, in the, the scope of our Christian lives, it also needs to be within us that we should repent. You want to see how much of a rebel you are? We're all born, natural born rebels. You want to see how much of a rebel you are? Let me give you a little text. Don't think about pink elephants right now. Now, you're in church. Be honest. What are you thinking about right now? If you're thinking about pink elephants, raise your hand. Those of you who are not raising your hand are lying. So therefore, we're all rebels. We all rebel in some way, shape, or form. It's, it's just in our DNA. We're wired to do that. Why? Because we are like sheep. So all this looking at the sheep got me wondering. When they come back, do they realize how good they've got it? Do they realize the beauty of the grace and the mercy of the shepherd? Because it got me wondering, is how often do I respond to the grace and the mercy of this shepherd who brings me back every time? I repent. Every time I repent. Because there is a time when the shepherd doesn't have to go after us. But yet he still does every time. Why? Because of his grace and because of his mercy. The sheep, if it's not stuck somewhere, can hear the familiar voice of the shepherd and come back. If it's stuck, it will bleed out so that the shepherd will come and find him. As a sheep, repentance is always in our best interest. But repentance is not fun, is it? It's not comfortable because it causes me to combat my pride and say, I have messed up. I have sinned. I have wandered. And we have a real God complex in our flesh, don't we? Because the reason we wander is because we say we know more than God. I don't need God. I don't need to follow him as my shepherd. I'm going to go over this way and everything's going to be wonderful. Matter of fact, it might even be better than it was with the shepherd. And so repentance causes me to say I'm wrong, which I really have a hard time with. Anybody with me there? And then also causes me to say I'm wrong, and I have no excuse, and I have no hope apart from your grace. Good shepherd. That's what we see as we get into Psalm 51 this morning. David, who was the shepherd boy who wrote Psalm 23, who killed Goliath, who was the hand-picked, hand-chosen king of Israel, who God said later on about David was the man after his own heart, had seasons of rebellious wandering just like a sheep. So Psalm 51, as we look at it this morning, is a recorded prayer by David after he's confronted by Nathan. This is after his sin with Bathsheba. And he's confronted by Nathan with his sin, and this is what he writes down. This is his response to the conviction, his repentant response. In verse number one, it says, Be gracious to me, God, 
according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. It's right there in my face. It doesn't go away. Against you and you alone, or you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge me. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have crushed rejoice once more. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. O oh God, create a clean heart in me, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return unto you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice that is pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken spirit and a humbled or contrite heart, O God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will speak this morning. I pray that as your messenger, I would hide behind the cross and you would hinder me from saying anything that would hinder your truth and your conviction from going forward. Lord, I know that in a, in a gathering this size and those that are watching right now, I know that there is a number of us, probably all of us, if we are being honest with ourselves, that are in need of repentance. And so I pray this morning you would speak to us and help us to act accordingly to what you, what you teach us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Psalm 51 is another psalm that we know is penned by David himself. This is later on in his life. He's the king of Israel at this point. He has, he has established, I mean, just a, a massive kingdom. And at this time in his life, David began to get a little bit arrogant. He began to think, you know, God got me here, but I, 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 David can keep me here, right? And he began to enjoy a little bit of the blessings, and he began to take advantage of some of the blessings and take them for granted a little bit. So the Bible says over in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12, this is kind of the, the background narrative, the real life uh, kind of explanation of why David is saying what he's saying in Psalm 51. We see, the, we see the evidence of what happened. Back in those days, kings led their soldiers into battle. And it was at the season when the kings would go out to war, and David, instead of going out to battle like he was supposed to, he decided to stay back at his palace, and he sent all the other guys out to fight. So David one night goes out on his porch, and he looks out over his kingdom, just taking in the view, and he sees out of the corner of his eyes, he sees a woman who is taking a bath, and he finds her beautiful. And so we know, we know the story, we won't go into all of the details, but I want to give you a detail that is oftentimes not talked about, because when we hear about David's sin with Bathsheba, what we oftentimes think about is saying, well, why was Bathsheba out taking a bath where the king could see her? Number one, she didn't think that the king would be there, because it was a time when all the warriors were gone. David wasn't supposed to be there. Number two, David knew exactly where to look. Number three, I believe David stayed back because he already had this in mind. And people say, well, well, well Bathsheba, you know, why do they, they oftentimes spend this, and we oftentimes can look at this as some sort of consensual affair, but you have to understand the context of the day. Nobody said no to the king. 
So when the king is out there and he's looking and he says to himself, am I the king or am I not? He sends his messengers and his guards to go down and to talk to Bathsheba and say, the king wants your presence. The king desires your presence. And you don't say no to the king. So Bathsheba came and he used his power and his authority to get her to sleep with him. David, there's a, there's, a, there's a great contextual understanding that helps us to understand that David acted in a predatory way towards Bathsheba. So we see this man and we begin to think, man, David, just how far have you gone? The man after God's own heart would, be, would, 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 would act in a predatory way against this innocent woman. And not just the woman, but the wife of one of his trusted soldiers. And David's a married man as well. So as I, I say all that to make us understand the nature of David's sin, this wasn't just an oopsie. This was some hardcore sin here. This was not just an affront to God, but it was also a sin against Bathsheba as well. So Bathsheba winds up pregnant as a result of the encounter, and a baby is born. But not before David has to try to cover things up, right? We know the cover-up story, long story short, Uriah will not come home and be with his bride because he stays on the field and makes sure that he does what he's supposed to as a soldier. And so it leaves David with no choice. He writes a, a note to his general and says, make sure that Uriah is put up on the front lines, and then I want you all to pull back except for Uriah, and I want you to leave him as the point man, and he'll be killed in battle. So in a lot of ways, David hired a hit on Uriah's life. So David now is an adulterer. David now is a sexual predator. David now is an accessory and a conspirator to murder. Man, that's some, that's some, those are some pretty big charges to be brought against the king. If anybody needs to repent, it should be David, right? So Nathan the prophet comes in, and here's what, here's what David says. Now with Uriah out of the way, Bathsheba has not yet had the baby. <laughs> David steps in as the king of Israel, I will honor my man by marrying his widow. And so now David looks to the country like this golden boy, this gracious king, and no one knows what's going on except for God and David and Bathsheba and also God's man who tells, who God tells. His name is Nathan. Nathan approaches David and says, hey, let me tell you the story about a guy who had all these sheep. Once again, we see sheep, right? Let me tell you a story about this guy who had all of these sheep. He was this wealthy farmer, and this other guy who was just, just this small guy, but he was faithful, and he only had one little ewe lamb. And the farmer, the big, the big corporate farmer that said, man, I, I just don't like this, this guy anymore, so he said, I want to have this sheep all to myself. So he went and he killed the, the small-hand farmer, and he took the ewe sheep, and he cooked it, and he ate it for himself. And David said, if I'm, not the if I'm the king of Israel, this will not happen in my kingdom. Take me to this man, and we will take his life. David looks at him, or Nathan looks at David and says, David, you're the man. And immediately, conviction begins to set in on David. And this is where we see Psalm 51 come into play. This is David's response to the conviction laid upon him for his sins, for his season of wandering. The shepherd boy who sat out at a tree one day and penned Psalm 23 is now coming to the shepherd as a sheep that has wandered away saying, Lord, welcome me back into the fold. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is here not just to show us David's sin. It's here to show us our own propensity that if not for the grace of God, there we go too. 
And it also shows us the love and the grace and the mercy of God that he is not content to leave us in our sin, but that he makes forgiveness available to us. But we must repent in order to do that. So you may be thinking, oh, I'm not as bad off as David. This guy is terrible. Yet he was still, as God said, a man after God's own heart. How did that happen? It happened because David had a truly repented heart. One that recognized sin, one that fell upon forgiveness, one that craved the cleansing of God, and one that results in restoration. And that's what we want to look at this morning, these four things. And the first thing is this. If we want to, have, if we want to be repentant, truly repentant, true repentance must recognize sin. True repentance must recognize sin. The word repent means to express sincere regret about wrongdoing. And it also paints a word picture in the Hebrew of someone who's walking in one direction and then makes a 180 degree turn and starts walking in the opposite direction. So repentance of sin is the idea that I have wandered from God, and anytime we wander from God, we're walking away from Him. Anytime we sin, we've wandered in the opposite direction of God's righteousness. So repentance course corrects and says, I will no longer walk in that way, but I will walk back in the way that you have prepared for me, O God. So this is what it is. True repentance must, first of all, recognize our sin. There has to be a moment when we're walking away from God and we realize, this is not good for me. I want to go back to God where I was cared for. I want to go back to Him where I was close with Him and where I had peace and where I had joy. And I wasn't just riddled with this guilt and conviction in my heart. And so this is where David is at. See, we have to learn to own up to and to own our sin. See, we're prone not to own our sin. When we sin, what do we normally do? We don't go telling everybody about it. What do we normally do? We find excuses for it. We justify it. And in our society and in our culture that is secular and away from God, if there is something that is morally, un morally not acceptable, we begin trying to move everyone towards accepting it so that it is therefore no longer wrong. If I can take away something being wrong in the sight of everybody else, then it must not be wrong anymore. But what we do is we leave out God, the lawgiver, who says, if it's wrong and I say it's wrong, it is always wrong. And the reason it's wrong is because I created you and I know what is good for you and I know what harms you. Trust me. But see, we have to own our sin, and we also have to own up to our sin, but we're not prone to do that. We make little allowances for it, and we say, oh, it's not that bad, and then we do a little more, and then we do a little more, and then all of a sudden, we're further than we thought we wanted to go, and that's what a, 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 this, this quote that I, I, I gathered a couple of years ago, and I forget who it was that said it, is, sin will always take you further than you want to go. It'll always keep you longer than you want to stay, and it's always going to cost us more than we ever intend to pay. See, in our text, David's language shows us that he finally and fully recognizes the depths of his actions with Bathsheba. He says in verse number one, he says, blot out my rebellion or cover up my sin. He realizes there's nothing he can do to erase it. He realizes that the stain of that sin is forever there. And that's what we have to understand about our sin. The stain of that sin is forever there. It's like if you drip ketchup on, a, on one of your nice white shirts or you drip grape juice or something like that on one of your nice white shirts. You can't erase the stain. What you have to try to do is cover it up. And that's what God's grace does for us. That's what his blood has done for us. It blots out our sin so that there's no more record for it. David says, the stain with Bathsheba, the sin with Bathsheba is not going to go away. But Lord, in your grace and your mercy, if you will blot it out, that'll be compassion for me. He says, wash away, in verse number two, wash away my guilt. 
Once our sins are blotted, God begins to work on our heart to begin to wash away our guilt. Because if we are under the blood, we are victors in Jesus Christ. So my shame and my guilt should be taken away. Understand this, if it is under the blood, you are above the sin. Walk with your head held high. And then number three, he says, cleanse me from my sin. Don't hold it to my account anymore. Not only does he own his sin, he also owns up to it. He doesn't try to make an excuse. He doesn't shift blame. He calls it my rebellion, my guilt, my sin. He didn't pull an Adam and Eve, what Adam did to Eve. When Adam was in the garden and he ate the fruit, what did he say? Uh, the woman you gave me is the reason I sinned. So first of all, he shifted the blame on Eve as a temptress. And then he also shifted his blame on God. I wouldn't have even been tempted by Eve if you hadn't given her to me, God. Now you're trying to put your sin on God, and God's not going to take that. David doesn't, David doesn't try to blame anyone. He didn't say, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been out there. He didn't say Bathsheba shouldn't have been so gosh darn pretty. He didn't say any of that. He says, my sin. It's my sin. And it is a sin that is before you, God. He says, I am always conscious of my rebellion. That tells us that the Spirit will continue to convict us when we sin. Even though we try to find ways to justify our sin, and even though we may feel like we're getting by okay. See, David thought he was getting by. He'd married Bathsheba, baby was on the way, nation loved him, but there was still something needling him. There was still something that wasn't completely right. Because the minute Nathan said, you're the man, he could no longer put that wall up anymore. Everything came flooding in. Why? Because he says in verse number three, he says, I'm always conscious of my rebellion. Even though no one else knew and he thought he had gotten away with it, and he probably, probably could have if not for God. Everything seemed to be going okay. He was eaten with his conviction. He says, my sin in verse number three is always before me. Imagine what it must have been for David and Bathsheba to look at each other every day, knowing what had, done, had, had happened. I would imagine he probably never was able to look her in the eye. The Spirit will continue with conviction. We have all had that yearning in our spirit, especially as believers. If we're a child of God, here's the thing. We may still sin, but God's not going to allow us to sin successfully. And he's not going to allow us to sin joyfully. Oh, will we enjoy it for a while? Yeah, that's why we keep doing it. But he won't let us continue to do it without bringing us to a place of conviction. Our souls yearn to be in sync with God and his will just as much, if not more, than our flesh yearns to be out of his will. So our spirit is always at war with our flesh, drawing us back to him. This is why I think so many of us are struggling all the time with like just not being happy, not finding peace. It could be, and I'm not saying that's the only reason, it could be because you have unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life that you continue to try to justify. Bring it to him and lay it down before him. You see, we have to learn to see our sin as God does. And what is our sin? How does God see our sin? God sees our sin as a total and complete affront to all of our pride, or to all of his nature, I'm sorry. It's a total affront to his entire nature. See, God is holy and he is righteous. And what holy means is that he is set apart. He is different from anything and everything else that we know. Everyone that you know is not God. And God is not everyone that you know. God is set apart. He is holy. He is everything that we cannot be on our own in righteousness. 
He's holy and he is righteous and there is no sin that he holds. There is no sin that can approach him. There is no sin that he can be a party of. And this is why sin has to be dealt with. This is why when Adam and Eve sinned, we were no longer as a human race allowed to come to heaven if it were not for the grace and redemption of Jesus Christ. Sin separates. Sin kills from a holy and righteous God. He's the lawgiver, and he's the only righteous judge, and he's the one who is ultimately wronged by our sin. Look at verse number four. He says, against you, God, against you alone, I have sinned, and I have done this evil in your sight. Again, let me, let me bring this back. David is saying here, it's all me. I'm owning it. It's all me, and I realize that my sin has affected not just myself, it has not just affected Bathsheba, it's not just going to affect my son who, the Nathan, Nathan the prophet in, Samuel, in Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12 said, God has decided that because of your sin this baby will die. So David is seeing what all his sin has cost, but ultimately he comes and he says, I have sinned against you, God, and against you alone have I sinned. This doesn't mean that David doesn't think he did wrong to the rest of these people. But he knows that his sin is before God is what has brought this to, to light. God cannot let, God looks at sin as a total affront to his character, but he also sees it as, a, as something that he cannot let go. It has to be dealt with. Sin is something that if it lays right before David's face, like it says in verse number three, it lays right before God too until it's dealt with. It lays right there like a past due account. Don't you, many of you may, may have not ever gotten this, but have you ever received collection calls before? Those are not fun. Or maybe you forgot to pay, pay a bill and they, they just keep calling you and keep calling you and keep calling you. It's like forever keeping it right in front of your face. That's what our sin is like with God. It's a total affront and it cannot just let it go. And this is where I think we get, false, we get a, a false understanding or a theological misunderstanding about how God forgives our sin. Forgiveness doesn't mean that God just says, ah, that's okay, let's overlook it. God doesn't do that. See, our sin is an affront to his nature, and our sin has to be dealt with. This is why the blood of Jesus matters. Because each time we come to him and ask forgiveness, God doesn't just say, okay, I'm just going to take that sin and put it over here, and it just never existed, we're just going to overlook it. No, he doesn't overlook it, he has to pay for it. Like a past due account. And he applies and he blots that out. And each time we sin, the blood of Jesus is applied, and he says, the debt is paid. But it must be paid. And just like with our salvation, the debt will not be paid until we ask with a repentant heart. Forgiveness is the currency, or blood is the currency of forgiveness, but repentance is what we use to pay that currency. So he doesn't try to make an excuse. He doesn't shift the blame. He calls it my rebellion. We have to see our sin as God does. And since God is the righteous judge, he cannot just overlook sin. It has to be dealt with. And lastly, this morning, we're going to go, do a two-part message. Some of you are looking at the outline going, oh my goodness. I knew when I prepared this, we weren't getting through the whole thing. But this is a good stopping point this morning. We have to recognize that we are natural-born sinners. We're natural born sinners. See, what we're prone to do, especially in our Christian piety, is we hear the word sinner, and we say, oh, that's those other people out there. That's those guys out there on Facebook that are posting things that I don't agree with. That's the guys in the, in the other political party. 
That's my neighbor who keeps impeding upon my property line. They're the sinners. I'm not a sinner. I'm a Christian. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yeah, but you're still a sinner. We're all natural born sinners. Every one of us. We're born messed up. <laughs> These cute little babies that we've been seeing sonograms of, and we continue to pray for their healthy delivery with the day they're born, they're born messed up. And I don't want to make, make you new moms mad, but they're born natural born sinners. We all are natural born sinners. He says this in verse number five, indeed I was guilty when I was born, I was sinful when my mother conceived me. What David is saying here is, I realize that I sin because that's just what I do. He could have said, you know God, if you had not wanted me to sin, you shouldn't have allowed me to be born with a sin nature. Why didn't you apply grace to me before I was even born and conceived? But he owns his sin, he owns up to it, and he realizes if it's not for the grace of God, I'm going to do it again. This is what true repentance calls for. True repentance is not just, oh God, I'm sorry for my oopsie. I'm sorry that I messed up today. I'll, I'll do better next time. I'll talk to you later. And, and the next time you talk to him is when you messed up again. And this is why some of us still struggle with, we come to the altar time and time again to lay down a sin, and we get back up and we pick it back up again, is because we've not come to the understanding that we are natural born sinners, and if it is not for the grace of God, we will continually fall victim to it time and time and time again, because it's what our flesh desires. When we come to the understanding that I am prone to wander, I'm prone to leave the God I love, like the old song says, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. What we're asking God to do is change my heart. David wasn't asking for a change of situation or circumstance. He wasn't asking to get in a time machine and go back to where he wouldn't have done this with Bathsheba. He wasn't even asking, Lord, could I just go back in time where I would have gone to battle and none of this would have happened? He said, Lord, I know that I sinned because I wanted to because I'm a natural born sinner. And here's what repentance does for us. When we own our sin and we recognize our sin, it then causes us to recognize the holiness of God. The problem with some of us today, the reason we're not recognizing our sin like we should, is because we've settled for a God who we've created that looks and acts and is just like us, but he's not, folks. He's not. Jesus is not our homeboy. Jesus is not just a guy who'll sit down and, and shoot the breeze with us. Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. And God is our holy God. He deserves our worship and he deserves our fearful obedience as well. So as we bow our heads and we close our eyes this morning and we go into a time of invitation, we only finish point number one. There's three more points that we'll finish next Sunday, so I guess we're extending the series one more week. Summer keeps going, doesn't it? It's the endless summer. Because we're natural born sinners, repentance needs to be part of our natural rhythm in our relationship with God. Understanding that I am prone to wonder makes me understand just how wonderful and beautiful it is that God would say, repent and be forgiven. Repent and be forgiven. And if David can repent of the things that he did and be forgiven, how much more can we? So the question that I asked this morning, 
is this. What is there that has been unrepentant? What wandering have you been doing that you just need to call out to the shepherd? The shepherd is already calling out to you. Say, come to me, all you who are tired and weary and you're heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He calls out to us. Do you hear his voice? And he's saying, repent and be forgiven. If you're a child of God, repentance is not just something we do to get saved. Repentance is part of our daily existence as children of God. Because as we walk in this world, our flesh sometimes takes over and we wonder. Repentance is not something that we must be ashamed of or embarrassed of. Maybe we come in shame and embarrassment to God, but we walk away victorious in forgiveness. This is a gift that we can repent. So what repentance is needed today? Maybe you're here, maybe you're watching this morning and you've never repented of your sins for the first time in your life to become a child of God, to be saved. The Bible says all of us have gone astray like sheep. We've all wandered our own way. And then it says the Lord laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all, meaning he took our sin and our shame and he paid for it on the cross once and for all. But what he asked for us to do is to repent, to admit, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I need you, Lord. Just like he says, be gracious to me in mercy and your loving compassion, Lord, be merciful to me. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.